0: bottle of wine that truly represents a particular grape or region. To pick up a copy, just head to amazon.com or visit us at mamajumboshrimp.com.
1: will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today it is my great pleasure to travel to the heart of Irpinia to visit one of Italy's most iconic wine estates, Mastro Berardino Societa Agricola, and to meet the president of the company, Dr. Piero Mastro Berardino. Buongiorno, Piero. Thank you so much for being my guest. How are you today?
2: It's my great pleasure. Yeah, we're fine. We are in the middle of our uh, uh, winter yet, and uh, it's, uh, it's a little cloudy today here, but uh, it's typical of Irpinia. As you know, we are in the middle of the mountains down
1: here. Yeah, I think uh, you know we, we, we can easily have a an idea in our minds of southern Italy and the and the sun always shining, but of course inland Irpinia is very different from the coast, isn't it?
2: Yeah, definitely, it is different. Uh, consider that uh, we are only thirty minutes drive uh, away from the Amalfi coast uh, in the inland on the mountains, but there is about uh, seven to ten Celsius degrees of difference on the average, and. Uh, We've got snow all around, even even now. We got snow around in our mountains, and uh, so the the, the the microclimate is completely different. It's good for wine, for grapes, and for vines for sure. But uh, on the coast, uh, probably it's a little more pleasant. And uh, 30 minutes drive from my house on the other side, we got a ski side. So wow, I mean. Uh, Yes, it's it's completely different, yeah. I know that many people don't um, have a perception of what happens at this latitude, but with this altitude. But uh, here, Irpinia is the last wine region to harvest compared to any other wine region of Italy. So we finish harvesting in the first half of
1: November. Well, that's incredible. And I think that is important for our listeners to understand that uh um, the inland country, the altitude of the vineyards, and all of these factors uh, are, are what make the wines great. <laughs>
2: yes, definitely, because uh, um, the vineyards go up to 700 meters of elevation. This is very important because if you put uh, together with the altitude and the cold environment, uh, the soils and the grape varietals, at the end you've got this beautiful freshness the acidity that make uh, these wines uh, extremely clean uh, on one sense, but also extremely ageable. That is another yes. very important characteristic for the wines of the region.
1: Now, Piero, you lead one of Italy's best known and most important wine companies. You're also a professor of business. You curate the Mima Mastro Baradino Family Museum, as well as an art gallery. You're a poet, a published novelist, and an artist. And for 25 years, you also oversaw an incredibly exciting project, Villa dei Misteri, in which you were working with the archaeological authorities to actually plant a vineyard within Pompeii. Now, that is the subject of a Part 2 interview we'll be doing next month, and I'm very excited to learn more about that. But for today, I'd really like to focus on some of the most significant achievements and contributions that the Mastro Berardino family and winery have made to the wines of Irpina, Campania, and indeed all of Italy. Because I think you, your family really changed the perception of wines from southern Italy, certainly, and from Campania. So I know the family has a very long history. You're of the 10th generation, Uh, And I just, let's begin with a little bit of background about the family in uh, Tripalda.
2: Oh, yes. The company was established at the beginning of 1700s, 10 generations before me. And uh, um, this was uh, a process in which, uh, first of all, the family focused on agriculture and on the patrimony approach. So they during the 1700s made a lot of investment buying land. And then in 1747, they bought the uh, area in which the winery is uh, located still today. So uh, from that moment, Atripalda uh, uh, in this exact position where my house is uh, uh, currently um, became the headquarter of all the activities. And uh, then uh, in the beginning of 1800s, uh, We have uh, the father of my great grandfather that was named Michele, that was uh, another guy that uh, gave a a more structured organization to the company. And his son Angelo was the pioneer that uh, starting in mid eighteen hundreds decided to open the perspective of uh, international markets. So these are the big, the most relevant changes during the last uh, centuries. In 1878, uh, the family starts exporting all around Europe and then uh, opening uh, North American markets, uh, United States first and then Canada. There's a part of the family that uh, sells uh, his part of the company, that is uh, my great grandfather's brother, uh, that was named Giuseppe, he sells his property and then he moves to New York. And uh, his house becomes our headquarter in North America by the end of 1800s, uh, where so um, side of the family starts going every year for many months to develop the business there. And in our museum, we've got plenty of letters describing all these uh, processes of change in the organization and in the strategies of the company. Even if it's a small, of course, it's a small winery, but uh, the vision uh, that they have uh, in that period is unbelievable. I mean, they are capable to organize the activities, uh, to deal with uh, many parts of the world. Beginning of uh, 1900s, they start covering all the continents they have uh, a strong presence in africa because the the colonies uh, the italian colonies there but not, not only the italian also the french and uh, and the british colonies uh, had uh, many people buying our wines and then uh, uh, after north america they open latin america in 1920 in conjunction with the prohibition uh, act uh, that uh, is uh, in the United States is on uh, starting in 1920. So they open uh, Argentina and then Brazil, and then they open Asia too, uh, and also Australia becomes uh, a destination for our wine. So in 1920s, late uh, 20s, uh, they cover
1: all the continents of the globe. So this is a very- That's that's an incredible story. I had no idea that the family uh, were one of the early pioneers of exporting Italian wines all around the world well before you know even even pre-war, and also, I guess Pierre, it's interesting to note that this also follows the history of Italy with the family under the Spanish Bourbons uh, until unification, and then after unification, after the creation of the kingdom of Italy, that um, th- the opportunities to. Uh, explore the world and find new markets who really were very early pioneers in in taking Italian wine around the world. Yes, definitely. All the documents of the family um,
2: starting in uh, 1700s all the way to 1860 are sealed with the seal of the reign of the two Sicilies, so the Borboni family. And then after uh, 1860, we got the Savoia, and so we got all the papers from... Uh, the first king of Italy that was Vittorio the II, and then the second king of Italy was named Umberto Primo. And then Vittorio Emanuele III, that was the third king of Italy, of the unified Italy, that gave to my great-grandfather, Angelo, appointed him as the Cavaliere del Re, Knight of the King in 1905. And uh, wow. because he was really making a great job in exporting these wines from, from Irpinia. And uh, if you look at uh, the letterhead of the family in 1911, you will see on the top a seal where my great-grandfather writes uh, that uh, he's not presenting his wines to the expo in Paris because in 1910, it was in 1910, because he was the member of
1: the jury. He was judging the other wines. Wow, that's an incredible, incredible story. Now, it was really after the devastation of World War Two, after yeah. the fighting took place and the Germans were retreating, leaving the winery in, in ruins, that important decisions were made by the family that have really had a major impact on the wines of Mastro Berardino, but more importantly, the wines of Campania and uh, in terms of really raising the profile of all of Southern Italy. Tell us about this.
2: Yes, that's another turning point. Uh, That's a very, very difficult and sad uh, period for the family because uh, uh, 1943, in the middle of World War II, is a turning point because uh, the war starts going bad for Italy uh, and for Germany, a little later, but uh, Italy uh, starts having a, a very bad time in Southern Italy because uh, when the Allied army arrives, uh, we have the bombings from the Allied that uh, are trying to, uh, you know, to make uh, the Germans uh, escape from the area and the Germans going out of the region that, uh, you know, showed in the in the casks that uh, devastate and uh, steal things and so on. So that moment uh, is a very tough one uh, the family um, is able to go on uh, making the harvest even under under the bombs of 43 they they do the harvest my father writes a letter to his older brother that is under the Germans uh, in Greece uh, on the war front and uh, um I mean, it's it's a very tough period. And uh, my grandfather Michele um, get, gets sick in that period. So my father that was only 15 years old becomes the leader of the family. And uh, this is uh, a period in which uh, he, uh, is, uh, he, he becomes stronger and stronger as a personality and uh, also awareness of uh, what he wants to do and what he wants to be and what, what, where he wants to bring. The family, considering that that uh, he was born in 1928, so he was born when he was a child. He had a very uh, happy and uh, rich condition in the family. So after World War II, he starts re- um, planting the uh, old vineyard. The Fiano was. Uh, the most damaged during the war, but also Greco and Aglianico had several damages, so he um, tries to convince all the people around to do, like the family, like Mastro Beratino family was doing. I mean, uh, we have these very ancient grapes, uh, even if the markets are down, uh, the markets uh, won't be like this for a long time. We have to trust in our future, we have to invest uh, in, in the future of our children, and so on. So he even if he's only 17 years old, in 1945, he's out there giving this message. And uh, he, in some sense, catalyzes a process, a virtual process uh, of uh, reinvestment in our viticulture. And um, from that point on, during the late 40s and the beginning of the 50s, he starts working at recreating a platform of production that is uh, wide enough to face uh, the international markets again. And this happens during the 50s. During the 50s, uh, he starts working through Europe before, first of all, in London. London is uh, the first place where they start re-exporting wines. And then from there, North America again. Uh, In the 60s, we have a full re-legitimation of uh, the wines from Mastro Berardino family and from Irpinia with the legendary vintages of Taurasi, 58, uh, then the 61, and then 68 will be the huge success uh, in the the beginning of the 70s when 68 comes to the market. Uh, It's uh, it's, uh, such an extraordinary outcome for the company and for the family that at that point, uh, this is really, again, what my father wanted to reach. So a complete recovery of the positions of success of the family uh, from the twenties of uh, the, of last century,
1: and, and that success based entirely through faith in the native grape varieties: Alianico for Torasi, Greco for Greco di Tufo, and Fiano, a grape that was virtually extinct. And the family helped to keep that that wonderful grape variety that uh, goes back to antiquity to keep that grape variety from going extinct.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely. The focus uh, from the family has always been on native grapes, uh, uh, no contamination without with other grapes uh, coming from uh, abroad, coming from other uh, regions. Uh, and uh, the Complete the full trust for the characters of these wines and the possibility to improve the quality of our viticulture. This is something that starts again from the 60s and goes all the way in the 70s, 80s and 90s with improvements, with changes in techniques uh, in the vineyards and then with improvements, of course, also in the cellars. So uh, this this has been an extremely interesting period uh, for me, Uh, you know, that uh, we've got a library of uh, one century of bottles uh, of the family. So we have the chance uh, to you know, analyze also the evolution of style and of techniques uh, in terms of uh, wine results, quality results in wine. So what we have seen is that my father has always been a, an innovator in, in the sense that uh, he never stopped investing in research, trying to understand more and more about us grapes, uh, trying to understand more and more about uh, the territory and the soils, uh, and uh, all the trajectories of uh, research uh, That he established during his life are still are the drivers for our activities of research and development even today.
0: Italian Wine Podcast, part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family.
1: Now that's incredible. He really was an absolute visionary um, in and this is one reason why the wines of Mastro Berardino are known around the world, but also how Irpinia now uh, has really benefited and has become one of the most dynamic and exciting wine regions in in Italy with fabulous wines being produced.
2: Yes, that's true. Because
1: uh, um, in Irpinia uh, at the
2: beginning of 1900, so uh, more than one century ago, We had a quite uh, interesting pool of producers. There were about uh, 20 or 30 uh, small companies uh, that uh, were trying, uh, together with my family, to develop uh, the business. And uh, then with the war, everything went down, and uh, my family remained the only winery after the war. Everybody, uh, you know, just quit because there there, there were not economic uh, conditions. And so the family went on even, uh, you know, uh, losing money, but they didn't want to stop the production. They didn't want to stop uh, the harvest and so on. Uh, So uh, 60s, 70s, 80s are decades in which my family has been Uh, almost completely alone in this process of relaunch of Irpinia wines. In the 90s, uh, things uh, start changing. And so we we start having uh, other people investing in viticulture and in in the cellars, trying to produce uh, wines from the region. And now we have uh, quite a wide uh, presence of wineries Uh, locally. We've got about 200 small wineries, small and medium-sized wineries, they are not Yet on international markets uh, in a a good amount, because currently abroad you can find probably 10 or 15 uh, good wineries uh, exporting wines. But I think that in the future, the process uh, could be reinforced uh, if uh, all these people go on uh, investing and uh, also working on the knowledge base. That is very tough in our business because, as you know, we got only one harvest per year. So uh, it, it takes time to get an experience uh, in the business and to uh, improve your level of awareness of uh, your choices. Uh, here we are in, a, in, a, in an area in which uh, harvest can be very tough because uh, the area of Irpinia is very cold, as we said, but also very wet. We can have a, a very important uh, rainfalls uh, during October. October is a very strategic month because we harvest in the late October, beginning of November. So you must be very careful in approaching the vine training system in order to get results, even in in uh, difficult conditions. And sometimes Irpinia gives uh, its best when uh, you got troubles because the interpretation of uh, nature is the most interesting part in a situation like ours. We got currently, we, we, we recently released uh, the 16 vintage for our reserve of Taurasi. We got three Taurasi Reserva, Stilema, Radici, and Historia. And uh, 16 has been quite uh, complicated as a harvest, but the wines are Extremely interesting, and it's a matter of interpretation. If you're able, you know, to work in the difficult conditions, at the end, Irpinia will give back to you all the best of uh, its uh, natural contribution. So it's very fascinating. I mean, to be here, uh, I must say that uh, we don't want uh, easy things to face and to manage. We prefer you know, that the contribution of creativity of men is really part of the management process of our vineyards.
1: Yes, absolutely. And wine, great wine, does always seem to come from that cusp of areas where it's almost at the limit of uh, the vine has to struggle, and it certainly sounds to be the case. Let's briefly talk about these three important grape varieties. Um, which do seem to find their greatest expression in Urpinia. First, Greco.
2: Oh yes. Greco Greco is very interesting. Uh, uh, is uh, among our whites, uh, is the most uh, powerful with structure and a body that uh, reminds uh, a red wine more than a white wine. Greco has a very thick uh, skin and this is a, this can be a problem when the harvest uh, is uh, uh, warm and dry because uh, you have to, to be very careful to separate the skin and to avoid any maceration. That can be a problem uh, in the following part of the process of winemaking. But uh, the Greco is extremely interesting. Uh, power, uh, a nice fruit, uh, very long and persistent taste with the, this uh, finish uh, of almond that is very, very intriguing and uh, uh, give an identity to the grape and wine. And uh, Greco... Traditionally, was considered less ageable than Fiano. I must say that in the recent years, with some research plan that we dedicated to these grapes, the project is called Stilema and covers all the three appellations. There is a Stilema Greco di Tufo, a Stilema Fiano di Avellino, and a Stilema Taurasi. And we have seen that Greco has a potential of ageing that is very similar, close to the one of Fiano. We are now releasing the 2018 Reserva of uh, Stilema Greco and stile fiano, not just to give uh, an idea of what is the potential of these wines. We keep the whites five years in the cellar, and then we release them, and uh, they are extremely fresh. The color is one of a very young wine, and with uh, the sense of matureness together with the freshness, the acidity is all there. So the potential of this grape uh, is uh, uh, incredible, and also the versatility. Compared to Fiano, probably the structure uh, of Greco makes this wine a little more versatile. So uh, I think that uh, Greco has a huge potential yet of development, even if it's very well known and probably is. is, uh, among our whites, is the best known because uh, of its uh, approachability in terms of, uh, of uh, tasting compared to a Fiano. It's a little more elegant, a little more austere. But uh, I, I think that uh, Greco is giving us a lot of satisfaction on this new perspective, that is uh, the aged uh, and refined Greco di Tufo. That was something that my father used to do in the past, uh, in the 70s, uh, all our whites, to stay in the cellar longer and were released at least three years after the harvest. Now Techniques allows us to to bring this process even longer and to release them uh, in the fifth uh, year of refining. That is extremely,
1: extremely interesting. And what about Fiano then? this great grape. Yeah, Fiano Fiano is
2: a little uh, different. Uh, the appellation area of Fiano is a little wider, but uh, the level of exploitation of the territory is uh, lower. So in in Greco uh, you got a smaller area but with uh, with a higher percentage of coverage of vineyards on the total uh, territory. In Fiano you can choose the best areas where you want to develop uh, the grapes and uh, uh, Fiano is important to locate the vineyard in very particular conditions. Our best uh, properties in Santo Stefano del Sole, where my family had the properties since uh, the beginning of 1700s. And in Santo Stefano, the soil of Fiano is, uh, very unusual. It's very sandy and very rich in minerals. So there we do very interesting experiments also in organic uh, protocol. But uh, um, coming to the grape, uh, the grape is completely different from Greco. It's uh, more delicate, uh, as I was saying, a little more on elegance and finesse, a little less on body and structure. Beautiful evolution. With the refining, and so in the case of Fiano, with the aging, you have this beautiful uh, nuance of fume, smokiness that is very, very, very uh, fine. And um, the fruit is different from Greco. Uh, the fruit profile in Greco is more on uh, peach and apricot. Uh, uh, in in Fiano is more on pear. Uh, and then the finish is the typical toasty hazelnut uh, taste. Uh, this is this makes this wine and the tasting extremely different from a Greco. I love the style of Fiano because of the finesse and elegance, as I said, but at the end, in terms of food pairing for a Fiano, you must be a little more careful, a little cleaner approach to the food pairing, uh, less uh, sauces and creams, uh, uh, white fishes is better, I mean, than, than crustas, that is more typical of a Greco, the, 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 the seafood that is, you know, you know the excellence for Gregory Tufo. So, um, a Gregory Tufa. So, I mean, what is interesting is that these two wines that are completely different give a beautiful representation of the potential of the whites of Irpinia, you know, allowing the consumer to experience so many different uh, things
1: from the same macro area. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's actually a very good, um, I think, distinction and an important distinction for our listeners to really try to understand this different expressions from the two grapes within Irpinia. Now, Alianico, the great red grape of Irpinia, one of the great red grapes of Italy, along with Nebbiolo and Sangiovese. Where does the name Torrazi come from? To uh, The other uh, wines are known by the grape name what does the name Taurasi come from? Taurasi is the geographic name. Like in, in the appellation Piano di Avellino, Avellino is the geographic
2: name and Greco di Tufo, Tufo is the geographic name. In the case of Taurasi, the name Taurasi today is the name of a village that is um, in the middle of the appellation area. But uh, uh, the origin of the appellation uh, Taurasi is the Taurasia village that was not far from the current Taurasi, but not exactly in the same position and was a a village that was known in Roman times. So that's the origin of the name. In this case, we don't have the grape varietal in the appellation name. Uh, Aglianico is the grape and Taurasi is the the DOCG appellation. Aglianico is considered the, the monarch of our viticulture the the most important and also the grape uh, that has uh, a huge versatility and give uh, the winemaker the possibility to experiment a lot. Consider that uh, uh, Alianico has a huge patrimony of polyphenol in the skins and this uh, makes the maceration uh, strategy determinant on the results in wines that you want to have because uh, of course you can uh, bring maceration to a longer period and have a a bigger process of extraction from the skins. Then, in that case, you will have a little more concentration in the the wines. But uh, you can even approach the grape with a little shorter maceration, enhancing more the finesse and elegance and uh, a different style of Taurasi. But you also can reduce the maceration to lower level to have a little lighter red wines. And we also produce a rosé that is called lacrima rosa with just a couple of hours of skin contact that is extremely elegant, very pale. But we also produce from Aglianico a white wine, a Blanc de Noir, that is called Nero Ametà, zero skin contact, with a beautiful grey colour and uh, with uh, a nose that uh, doesn't remind any of the characters of, of a has a beautiful, very delicate uh, a nuance of uh, wild strawberry. So it's extremely intriguing, extremely unusual. It's a very successful wine for us because it's completely out of scale and out of the perception of the consumer of a, a wine coming from Agliani.
1: Now, I just want to mention as well, one of your top ranges, flagship ranges of wines is the Naturalis Historia uh, that you mentioned, of course, named after the great work by Pliny the Elder. And that will, of course, lead us into our discussions the next time uh, when we look at your researches into ancient wine. But again, it's an important way of recognizing and paying homage to the lengthy history of wine in Irpinia.
2: Naturalis Historia is a wine that uh, was born uh, as a project uh, in the first half of the 90s, so quite recently, as a tribute from my father to Pliny the Elder. And uh, of course, uh, um, Naturalis Historia was an experiment at the beginning, and uh, it uh, came from uh, an old vineyard, eh? so with a little uh, low density of plantation, because it was more a traditional approach to viticulture. And with these very old, uh, big uh, plants, that are like uh, sculptures, you know, living sculpture, I usually say, beautiful, but with a very, very low yield per plant, with a very low production. So this tiny production uh, became at that point uh, a crew in the 90s. Uh, In the beginning, uh, we used to join in the blend just a little presence of Piedirosso. Uh, in ninety-seven, that was the first harvest uh, that was released on the market of this wine, there was a, a 10 to 15% of Piedirosso. And we went on with this experiment until uh, uh, 2001. Then uh, with the first uh, aging process of these bottles, we realized that Piedirosso didn't give uh, any relevant contribution after some years. Piedirosso was a little more on the, on the fruit, but the fruit goes down and aglianico becomes predominant. So in 2002, we did not produce uh, any big reds in the area because 2002 was too rainy. It was a very bad uh, harvest for the for the reds. And in 2003, we decided to put Piedirosso out of the blend and it became just 100% aglianico from this ancient... Uh, vineyard and uh, was reclassified uh, um, from Irpinia to Taurasi DOCG. So starting in 2003, Naturalis Historia becomes a Taurasi DOCG. And uh, it's uh, an extremely interesting wine because it comes from Mirabella estate that is not the coldest and not the highest uh, part of uh, the Appellation area. We produce the classical uh, Radici in Montemarano that is very cold and higher. Elevation close to the mountains, uh, while Naturalis story is produced in Mirabella estate that is more hilly. In the in the, uh, just to give an idea to the listeners, it's, it's more similar to the hills of uh, central and southern Tuscany. So the, the harvest comes a little earlier, one week earlier compared to Montemarano and the, the, the character of these grapes is a little uh, softer, a little rounder. So it, it's a little more delicate expression of Taurasi with a nice fruit, uh, with the beautiful spices, with the coffee and the, uh, dark chocolate uh, uh, and I mean, it's extremely interesting, uh, at the tasting. It's a wine that has a beautiful ageability. We do beautiful vertical tastings uh, back to the, the 90s, back to the beginning of the project. So it's a really exciting interpretation, different interpretation of Taurasi appellation. Taurasi is not just one wine. Taurasi can be many, many different interpretations.
1: Yes, indeed. Well, I look forward to exploring this further with you when we Next, have an opportunity to chat. I'm really looking forward to actually coming out to visiting you soon, Piero. In the meantime, I think we'll wrap up this first podcast now and continue our discussions when we meet in Atripalda, which is in only a few weeks' time. And I look forward to exploring in greater detail your wines, the story of the family, and the many things that you are working on now uh, and in particular, this fascinating story of ancient wine and your researches into uh, how wine was 2000 years ago. it been my great pleasure. Well, thank you very much for being my guest today, Piero, and I look forward to seeing you soon. But for now, uh, grazie e a presto.
2: Thank you very much and see you soon in Irpinia.